according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 1. I figure we'll spend 10 years in Proverbs chapter 1. And then uh, that'll make a 310-year series. Proverbs chapter 1. We're actually uh, in the last part of the chapter here. We spent the bulk of our introductory time in the first seven verses, the purpose for the book, and the admonishment for where do we begin? We begin with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. For this week, we are taking a look at verses 20 through 33, the last part of the chapter. And I thought we got a fairly good start on it last week, but we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, Before we do any of this, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. It would do us no good to sit here in carnality. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment of silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to humble yourself under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together this morning. Father, we do call upon you to manifest your faithfulness as you always do, the faithfulness that has promised that uh, your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And that's, uh, that's more than just how you sent it thousands and thousands of years ago in written form, but how you continue to send it forth day by day, moment by moment. And Father, on this day at this time to these people, Your word is being sent forth, and we claim the promise that it will not return void. Accomplish your purpose, be at work in and through us for your good pleasure. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. If uh, you've been with us in this study, we are in the midst now of main point five. Wisdom is a matter of public life. Wisdom is a matter of public life. And uh, just real quick to run through points one through four. We started by taking a look at Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Uh, The introduction to the book, the introduction to who wrote this and why. Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. We did the historical background on King David and his son, King Solomon, uh, the mother Bathsheba, and how that whole marriage got started. I can't think of a worse way to start a marriage than uh, David and Bathsheba. And yet, through that comes the grace and mercy of God in uh, the birth of Solomon. Under uh, point two, we did a vocabulary study on the Proverbs of Solomon, and we asked ourselves, what is a mashal? Uh, if these are the Mishle Shalomo, then what is a mashal? What does it mean? What is a mashal? What do we mean by proverb? And uh, this actually was not a very easy study at all to go through, be- simply because we have ideas fixed in our head about what a proverb is. And we have ideas fixed in our head about what a uh, parable is. And we have, a, we have ideas fixed in our head about what a riddle is. And, uh, and a uh, figure of speech or other things. And, and we classify these things all with different English words because that's how our language works and that's how our mind works. And if the form of the uh, of the thing it's a short pithy statement we think of it as a proverb if the form is more of a story to tell with a moral attached then we think of that as a parable uh if the form is a is a nyanyanyanya i told you so we call that a taunt all right but we have different english words for all of these things based upon the form they take not necessarily the function or what they're doing. In, in reality, every one of these is doing the same thing. They're communicating a truth. And they're communicating a truth in a very memorable way so that it sticks with you. The glorious thing is is, is that uh, to the Hebrew mind, they're all mashal. They're all, whether it's a parable or a proverb or a riddle or a taunt, uh, they're all mashal. And in the Hebrew mindset, that's uh, what we're dealing with here with the Mishle. Shalomu. All right, so there's uh, main point two. Uh, under main point three, we went through the introduction to the book in verses two through seven. Solomon begins by explaining what the book of Proverbs will do and how to get started. 
The book of Proverbs is going to do things to you. The longer you study it, the longer you dwell upon it, as you, as you learn these verses, as you adopt them, as you absorb them into your thinking and you adopt them into your daily practice, the book of Proverbs is going to have a powerful effect. And these are all the objectives of the book, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, to give prudence to the naive. If you uh, know of a, a naive person, a child or a knucklehead, uh, how are you going to remedy that naivete? How about if we start with some wisdom? Let's start with the book of Proverbs, all right? Get them grounded in the Word of God. Took you through uh, a lot of the subpoints there. All right. Then main point four, verses uh, 8 through 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. We must ground our children in the Word of God. Because, boy, the other influences of life are deadly. Parents must instill doctrine. Parents must instill divine norms and standards into their children. Because the other influences of life are deadly. There is no shortage of influences out there. And that's why from the youngest of ages, we want to be impressing upon our children the value of listening to mother and father, not simply because they're your mother and father, but because your mother and father are communicating the very same wisdom they're living by, the very same wisdom that the Lord is guiding their lives by. And if they don't, well, then in verse 10, as we see, my son, there's the sinners out there. If sinners entice you, do not consent. And there's a whole other world out there that doesn't have biblical norms and standards, all right? Uh, as my kids started learning when they started working in their high school jobs and whatever, got, get outside of their nice sheltered Christian home experience, um, they got coworkers that have entirely different backgrounds, entirely different standards, entirely different ways of thinking that uh, are not biblical, all right? And they need to know that ahead of time so that when they encounter it, they, uh, they have their armor on and they're ready to deal with it. All right, we had subpoints A through F there, but we're going to uh, pass by all that to get now to where we are today, main point five. Wisdom is a matter of public life. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. And this, I love this verse. To me, this is, uh, this, this is a delight in my way of thinking, only because... Um, it's, it's, it's irritating to me, like I can't describe how the, the culture is telling us to shut up. Culture is telling us that I can be a Christian, but just keep that to myself and, and just have my own personal faith as a matter of my own internal conviction or my own internal thinking and don't speak it. And certainly if you speak it, don't speak it outside your home or don't speak it outside your church. Um, don't speak it anywhere where my atheistic ears might hear it or I'll be offended and I'm going to sue you kind of a thing. That's the world we live in. And yet, the biblical expectation is, is that believers with divine norms and standards are going to very publicly be proclaiming the faith that they live by. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. If we completely remove divine viewpoint from public life, what are we left with? We're left with an atheistic worldview in our public life, in our in our government, in our courts, in our in our in everything, in the schools, and in, in everywhere. All right, and I would say, since in my lifetime anyway, um, I, you know, since the '60s, uh, this has been the the conscious effort to remove prayer, to remove everything from the public schools, to remove everything from public life. The last time I gave a prayer at the city council, I was told, remember, this is non-sectarian. This is non-sectarian. And they used that word because what they didn't want to come right out and say is, don't mention the name of Jesus. This is non-sectarian. This is non-sectarian. I smiled. I said, I understand. And then I closed my prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the last time I've ever been invited back. We're going on 12 years now since the last time the city council ever let me come back to, uh, to offer a prayer. All right. No, wisdom is a matter of public life. See, values are nurtured in the home, but they are manifest on the streets. Virtue, values are nurtured in the home, but they are manifest on the streets. And there, of course, there's a political ideology that wants to flip this backwards and nurture the values on the streets and then radically alter what takes place in the home. Okay. 
But that's not the way the, the Bible designed it. It's not the way God designed it and revealed his design in the Bible. Values are nurtured in the home. It's mother and father that instruct children. It's not the schools. It's not the uh, courts. It's not uh, MTV. Okay, you know, look at all these influences in our children's life, and uh, you start to wonder. Values are nurtured in the home, but they are manifest on the streets. Again, there's the street, there's the square, there's the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. And I think the idiom here, I think the language of verse 21 is interesting. The noisy streets are the marketplaces. These are the streets where uh, you've got your booths set up, you have your uh, merchants hawking their wares. It's very noisy on the marketing, on the merchant streets. Um, and so I look at noisy streets, the head of the noisy streets. Uh, this is where the market uh, vendors are shouting their wares. And then the entrance of the gates. We know throughout Scripture that the city gates are the places of judgment. They're the places where the elders will gather for uh, deciding cases. They will gather for ruling uh, on particular uh, judicial matters or even uh, uh, uncontrollable thugs, uh, children are brought uh, when parents are not able to discipline and they need the community support to help administer discipline to the uh, juvenile delinquents of their day. All of that takes place in the gates. Anytime you have gates, there's reference to um, judicial operations. So in any event, I think uh, in the streets, in the square, on the noisy streets, on the uh, gates to the city, in other words, every facet of public life every facet of public life, including our banking, our commerce, our um, business dealings. You know, why is it so weird if, if Hobby Lobby wants to run their business according to biblical standards? Why is it so weird if Chick-fil-A wants to be closed on Sundays? See, and, and that's coming under attack too. No, if you want to run a business, run a business. And they, they're trying to separate business from faith. Well, yeah, the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Divine norms and standards are our norms and standards in every facet of life. Point B. Let's look at verse 22 now. Love, delight, and hate. Love, delight, hate is a twisted trinity for the scoffing fools who prolong their naivete. Now here's the problem. How long, O naive ones, Will you, ahav, will you love being naive or simple-minded? How long, O pethi? And we've done the study on pethi already. We know the, the blessings of being pethi, that God has a protection to the pethi, a protection to the naive. And the blessings of naivete are to be grounded in the Word of God from the youngest of ages. But you have to grow out of it. You cannot prolong it. So you can be thankful for the Lord's protection while you are growing out of that stage of life, but you cannot prolong that stage of life. And to try to do so is irresponsible and defiant of the plan of God. You know, and then here again, we're flying in the face of culture because now we want to redefine childhood up to the 20s. You know, you're still an irresponsible child in the in the uh, in your twenties, and you can stay on your parents' insurance till you're twenty-six, and uh, you know don't don't hold you accountable until you're in your thirties before we start expecting that you'll be a responsible member of culture. Wait a minute, you know, biblical times they were married at twelve, at fourteen, and they entered into adult responsibility. They were going to war at fourteen. Different things there. Well, how long, O oh naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? If you're going to prolong your childhood or childlike attitude or your childishness, that's a problem. That's a problem. Now, three words for fool do appear in Proverbs, and we have a sampling of them here because we have the pethy, who's not a fool, but then he becomes a scoffer, and then the scoffer becomes the fool who hates knowledge. And there's a progression in verse 22. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. So there's the twisted trinity of love, delight, and hate. And then uh, we have the progression between 
the fools that we also have in this verse. And here's our three words for fool. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them, I don't think. The one we might expect is Nabal. And it's really the one that's used most rarely in Proverbs. And I don't know, maybe we just like to think of Nabal because of Nabal and Abigail and the story there with King David. Uh, Nabal was obviously a fool, and Abigail um, was uh, a woman of wisdom and a woman of discretion and uh, blessed of the Lord in that story. Uh, so if, if you have a basic Hebrew vocabulary where you expect that Nabal would be the standard word for fool in the Old Testament, you'd be correct about that, but not necessarily in Proverbs. Only three uses in Proverbs, uh, two in chapter 17 and one in verse 30. No, the much more common term for fool in Proverbs is the kaseel, 70 times, including 49 times in Proverbs. All right, 70 times including 49 times in Proverbs, and it starts right here in this verse, because it's the Kaseel who hates knowledge. The Kaseel hates knowledge. The second word for fool looks kind of evil. It's evil. Evil. And it doesn't, uh, it's totally unrelated to the English word evil, but um, it's a second word for fool, used 19 times in Proverbs, and we've already passed it. It comes, uh, we saw it in verse 7, was the first use of it, where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and the avil, fool, despises wisdom and instruction. And so what are the shades of differences then between the kaseel and the avil? They are different terms, what are, the, what are the nuances between them? If they're often used in parallel, we would expect that. That's how Hebrew poetry works, is that you tend to use related words in, in parallel and tandem with one another. And yet, when you have to make a distinction between them, then what's the, what's the shade? What's the distinction? How do we... Uh, and, and neither one's good. So they don't feel like, well, okay, I'm, a, I'm an avil, but at least I'm not a kaseel. <laughs> okay? No, you don't want to be any of them. And chances are, if you're one, you're probably both anyway when it comes right down. You're probably also a, a Nabal on top of that. Anyway, so we have three words for fool, Kaseel, Avil, and Nabal. If you want the Strong's numbers, they're listed for you there on the screen. Kaseel is number 3684, Avil is number 191, and Nabal is number 5036. And uh, I won't spend a ton of time on this, because I think Rather than stop and just give a survey on, on foolishness, we'll just, we're going to let each verse speak for itself as we make our way through these 31 chapters. However, it might be good just to anticipate certain things. And so, in fact, let me limit this here to Proverbs instead of the whole Old Testament. There we go. And there's our verse list. That'll be too small for you to read. So let's make it bigger. There. Better? Also, as we take a look at this, sometimes I like looking at pictures. Um, we'll maximize this one while we're at it. I am not a paid spokesman for the Logos Bible software, and I collect no revenue if you decide to purchase it for yourself. Um, that's a stupid graph. Um, that's the number of times it occurs in Proverbs, 70 times in Proverbs. But let's break it down by a chapter. There we go. That's more useful. So the three times that we have these terms, this is a graph of, of all three of the terms we're looking at for fool, the Kaseel, the Avil, and the Nabal. All right? And if you combine all three of those terms, there are, set, there are 70 uses in Proverbs. 49, 19, and 68, plus three more makes 71. So 71 uses in Proverbs, and that's where they're all charted off. 
And uh, right away, it just jumps out at you that, hey, okay, chapter 10, chapter 14, chapter 17, but the big one is, is uh, chapter 26. Uh, the, the, those are the places where we're going to find a concentration of foolishness, concentration of these vocabulary terms in the book of Proverbs. And if, in fact, God has gone to the effort to put a particular emphasis in a particular chapter, then we want to not miss that. We want to likewise observe that emphasis and make the same emphasis ourselves when we are preaching a text or, or teaching a book and, uh, and so forth. So, um, yeah, the 11 uses of, uh, of this vocabulary in chapter 26 is uh, going to be a highlight when we get to that particular point. In the meantime, um, you'll notice that, yeah, there's some in the first nine chapters in the idea of parental wisdom. Remember the first nine chapters of Proverbs is what I've titled parental wisdom, is the family wisdom of a mother and a father instilling values into the children. And it's not really, the, the fool is not really a character as prominently in those first nine chapters as what happens when you hit chapter 10 and, and then what follows. Uh, 10 through uh, 24, for example, in that first book of Solomonic Proverbs, uh, there's, there's quite a bit in 10, 14, and 17, 19 in particular. All right. So here at a glance, you can, you can read 71 verses in a pretty short order if you put them all on the same slide and just run down, you know, run down. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I get that. Um, scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge. That's our verse today, verse 22. It's going to come back again in verse 32 uh, where the complacency of fools will destroy them. It's another verse that relates the, uh, the nevi, the, the, the nephi, the naive, I'm sorry, pethy, the naive with the fools. The waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. That's why you want to keep your pethy as far away from those fools as you can. Um, chapter 3, the wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. The contrast we'll see time and time again. The clear answer to foolishness is God's wisdom. The clear answer to foolishness, there's no excuse for foolishness. Just humble yourself under the word of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Start there. Um, the knucklehead that's not listening to the parental wisdom will get involved in promiscuity, and uh, it'll be as fetters to the discipline of a fool. That's chapter 7 and verse 22. Here's the big emphasis in chapter 10. If I can scroll this up here. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Again, we understand the tandem relationship between father and mother, wisdom and foolishness, the way the poetry works in that. He who is wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Yeah, kind of interesting. Look at the adjectives attached to the fool, right? The babbling fool. <laughs> you would think if you're a fool, just go ahead and shut up and don't let people know how foolish you are, but no. These particular fools are pleased to babble and babble and babble and celebrate their, uh, their foolishness. In any event, we'll, uh, we'll pick up on more of those as we work our way through. I don't want to spend a ton of time on that this morning or get, get lost in, in that. Uh, Proverbs will bring this character back. The fool will be brought back. The slugger will be brought back. The, there'll be a lot of characters in the book of Proverbs that we're going to see again and again and again. And um, the negative example characters that we don't want to be a part of. All right. Main point C. The main thing I want to hit today is verses 23 through 25 here. So here's the aftermath, the how long, O oh, naive ones, we love being simple-minded. Isn't it time to grow up? Isn't it time to get wisdom? Turn to my reproof. Turn to my reproof. This is wisdom herself speaking. Behold, or God himself speaking, Yahweh. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. And there's going to be consequences for that. There's a price to pay when you ignore doctrine. There's a price to pay when God is speaking and you don't pay attention. 
The Spirit of God. This is point C in your outline. The Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence. The Spirit of God has always been, not just in the church age, the Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence subject to human refusal, inattention, and neglect. Now, this may ruffle a particular theology, but let's at least look and see what the verses say, and then if theology gets ruffled, we'll deal with that. Um, The Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence. In other words, turn to my reproof. I will pour out my Spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. This is the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, by the way, not even church age. Important to note, I should have colored that red or something. This is independent of the church reality for the universal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. It does not take the universal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit for you to learn Bible doctrine. (laughs) You can learn the Word of God without being spirit-indwelled. Hard to prove that today because we're all spirit-indwelled as believers. But how did the Old Testament believers learn the Word of God? How did the Psalm 119 kid learn the Word of God? How did David learn the Word of God? Well, he was spirit-indwelled. But most Old Testament believers were not spirit-indwelled, and they still learned the Word of God. The fact is, the Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence. Communicating spiritual to spiritual. They were spiritually alive when they became believers. They became a living human spirit when they became believers, even Old Testament believers. And having a living human spirit, then God the Holy Spirit can communicate doctrine. All right? And I say this because I I think it's tragic the way that folks just uh, inject an idea into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's take one side trip this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can hold your finger at uh, Proverbs 1. We'll be back there in a moment. But the idea here that's being communicated is that God's wisdom requires spiritual understanding. That the natural man cannot apprehend the things of God. Meaning, unbelievers cannot comprehend doctrinal truth. They cannot comprehend divine realities. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Verse 7, um, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That is a powerful verse right there. If Satan and the fallen angels would have understood the plan of God ahead of time, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus Christ. They wouldn't have worked so hard to put him to death. Didn't realize they were uh, accomplishing their own disarmament, their own defeat on the cross. I think he caught on. I think he caught on there right at, right at the end and started begging him to come off the cross. <laughs> started taunting him, saying, come down from there, come down from there. You know, I think it was then starting to hit him. Wait a minute. There's a trap in this. All right. Now, verse, uh, see, this is things which eye has not seen and ear not heard, verse 9, and which have not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. Right? You've got to love Isaiah, being quoted here in 1 Corinthians. Now, God's revelation. The, the, the philosophers will never invent this. The thinkers will never come up with this. Human reasoning cannot make this stuff up or imagine it, but God reveals it. For to us, God revealed through the Spirit the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. God the Holy Spirit can reveal these things. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. See, there's the it's an analogy that's that's explaining these things. Whatever you're thinking, I can't read your mind. No human being can read your mind. Only your spirit within you knows what you're thinking. Same thing with in terms of the mind of God. It's going to be known by the Holy Spirit, communicated by the Holy Spirit. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us 
by God. Now there is a universal provision in the church age for God the Holy Spirit, for every New Testament believer priest. That is a reality in the church. But don't confuse that with how Old Testament believers also learned the Word of God. In other words, ours is an intensification. Ours is, is, um, is, uh, is more powerful, more uh, complete, perhaps, because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us within. It's like, what, what has more effect, a voice outside of you yelling at you or the voice inside you yelling at you? The Old Testament was a teacher, and the Holy Spirit was a teacher in the Old Testament, but it was an external teacher. It was an external voice. So, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. Combining spiritual with spiritual. Sometimes spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, or combining spiritual with spiritual. Spiritual speaking with spiritual hearing. Combining spiritual dissemination with spiritual reception. All right, those taught by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always been a teacher. Always been a teacher. But a natural man, the soulish man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The soulish man. Remember, the unbeliever has a living body and a living soul, but a dead human spirit. He is not spiritual. But he who is spiritual appraises all things that he himself is appraised by no one. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, your human spirit is made alive. You're now a trichotomous. You have body, soul, and living human spirit. And so the Holy Spirit communicating doctrine is able to relate to your human spirit. All right, anyway, that's it for that side trip. Back to Proverbs. Um, Just note the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit on you. Turn to my reproof. In other words, if you are eager to receive it, he will pour it out. (laughs) If you come to Bible class hungry, if you come to Bible class humble, all right, I believe you can learn from even the the, the worst pastor to ever walk this earth. You can learn from the the, the worst student pastor, the, the, the clumsiest speaker with the lowest voice. It's hard to hear, but if you're hungry... If you're positive, man, the Holy Spirit is just going to pour it out. He's going to pour it out, and, and you're going to soak it up. All right. Turn to my reproof. At the end of this uh, development, it's going to say uh, we need to love the reproof. Um not spurn the reproof. We need to accept the counsel in verse 30 and uh, not spurn the reproof. We need to love it. We need to accept it. All right. The Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence. But now notice, he says, I will make my words known to you. However, does the Word of God always profit? It's always profitable, but does it always profit? Why did it not profit the wilderness generation? Okay, the book of Hebrews tells us this. The word went forth, but it didn't profit. Then why? Because it was not united by faith in the ears of those who heard. Don't blame the word of God if it doesn't profit. It is profitable. All scriptures, God breathed them profitable. But what will hinder it from being profited? What will hinder the spirit from teaching? You've got to hear. You've got to listen. You've got to obey the whole Shema imperative we discussed in verse 8. Turn to my reproof. Step one, the fear of the Lord. Notice now, I called and you refused. I called and you refused. Now this is Yahweh in this context, and specifically his spirit is being mentioned. Ooh, there's refusal here. Now as I said, this is going to ruffle a particular theology which says it's irresistible, but Let's, let's at least look at see what these verses are dealing with, all right? I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. So there's refusal, there's inattention, and then finally there's neglect. In verse 25, and you neglected all my counsel. The reason why, I think the summary statement 
you did not want my reproof. You made the volitional choice to reject the word of God. To reject as Yahweh was speaking. You made that choice. It was a volitional decision you did not want. And the volition in that verb, the Abba verb, okay, like Abba Father, the Abba verb is the verb for giving consent. When sinners entice you, do not consent. It's, it's your choice. You make these choices and you face these consequences. Because yes, God is a God of sovereignty, but God has also created volitional creatures, angels and humans, to either submit to His will or reject His will and to face the consequences. To face the consequences. And uh, it doesn't matter. We're going to see it here. It's going to be a part of this development. Whether you're talking about Galatians and the law of sowing and reaping, you reap what you sow. Whether you're talking about here and uh, you're going to eat what you've sown, you're going to eat your own fruit in verse 31. They shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. And I hope it tastes good going down because it's going to, it's going to not sit well in your stomach. There's going to be a horrible reaction to this. But you make your bed, you lie in it. You reap what you sow. You eat your fruit, the fruit that you produced. Uh, is that what you produced in your carnality? Well, you're going to eat it. You're going to eat the different metaphors, different expressions, but it all relates to the fact that we are accountable for choices we make. And the choices we make in defiance of God's word, particularly when we just close our ears and pay no attention to it, don't use that for an excuse. Don't say, oh, well, I never got the memo. You were supposed to. You're accountable. The flock you were assigned to was given that memo. Why did you not get it? <laughs> okay. So, the Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence, subject to human refusal, inattention, and neglect. Why is God subject to human refusal, inattention, and neglect? Because God Himself chose to be subject to human refusal, inattention, and neglect. God Himself determined that it was His good pleasure for angels and humans alike to serve Him volitionally or reject Him volitionally. That he wanted a realm of, and this is in our ABC reader, the plan of God reader, that God the Father desired for others to love his son as he loves his son. And that love is going to be a volitional love. It's not going to be a love and freedom. It's not going to be forced. It's not going to be deterministic. It's not going to be uh, enforced upon anybody. God doesn't, it's not grudgingly or under compulsion because God loves the cheerful, volitionally willful giver. And that's what we have here. Love. If it's forced love, what love is that? There's no love in that. You compel your child to apologize to the other child and he grits his teeth and says, sorry. What's the value in that? All right. But if the child himself is convicted, the child herself is, is, is uh, repentant, has the change of heart, has the change of thinking, from their own volition, from their own perspective, they come and they say, I'm sorry. There's value in that, is there not? There has to be. Because it's not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. You refused. No one paid attention. You neglected. You neglected. And here's three um, rejections of God the Holy Spirit. I find a marvelous parallel here. I'm not, maybe I'm, I'm probably not the only one that's ever done this. But I think we see resisting, quenching, and grieving the Holy Spirit. Right here in Proverbs. We're familiar with grieving, quenching, and resisting the Holy Spirit from the New Testament. Are we not? The more I dwell on these verses and the more I see the role of the Holy Spirit in communicating, I think we're seeing a parallel. I think we're seeing a commentary coming from Proverbs of what is later unfolded in the New Testament in terms of uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Acts 7. In terms of Resisting, quenching, and grieving God the Holy Spirit. Human refusal, inattention, and neglect. Parallel to resisting the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51, quenching the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 
Let's take a look at these. And you can put them in your notes. You can list them as you see on the board there. Point one, point two, point three. And I hit you with three points all at once, so I'll slow down and let you let you take your notes and think about it. Or take your picture. I know Doug takes a picture with his phone of every slide I put on the wall. It creeps me out. Every time I'm in the pulpit, I got my picture taken a hundred times. Occasionally you see me smile. I just I smile for the picture. Just... All right, it's not that distracting, I suppose. But admittedly, it was, I was pretty slow. It was, you'd been doing it for about a month before I finally figured out what you were doing. I'm like, why does Doug keep taking my picture? <laughs> it didn't make any sense. All right. Human refusal. I will pour out my spirit on you I, because I called and you refused. I called and you refused. Think about what is a calling? What is an invitation? What is a gift? All right. These are all offers. They are free grace offers. It is an opportunity being presented. It is not being forced upon anyone. An invitation. All right. It's not, it's not the, the, the Godfather offer he can't refuse kind of a thing. All right. It is an invitation. Will you come? All right. We're, we're invited to a church picnic this Saturday. But no one is compelled. We're not going to dispatch. Uh, police officers with handcuffs to arrest people that don't show up and force you to go. That's not how an invitation works. I called and you refused. There is the refusal. And I think human refusal is parallel to resisting the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51 There's a resistance. There is a, a human rebellion that just does not want to listen, does not want to respond. And Stephen testifies to this. Here's his uh, great sermon. He's preaching a powerful sermon and and uh, the only one we have recorded in Scripture. And then uh, they put him to death at the end of it. So, you know... <laughs> I guess if you're going to preach one sermon in your life, get a, get a good one in. And Obviously, the Holy Spirit spoke through him in a very powerful way. And look what he does here. He kind of ties it all together and wraps it up with Isaiah. Isaiah 66. And then in verse 51, he points his finger at him. And he says, you men... Who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. See, that's why I think we can take this and throw it back to Proverbs, throw it back to Exodus, throw it back to the Old Testament. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, the spiritual reality between behind what the the, the, the physical circumcision was supposed to uh, picture and portray. Stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. The human refusal. God Himself is speaking and we want no part of it. We are refusing to listen. We don't even want to know what He's talking about. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> you know, you run down the list, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, you know, you, you run through the list of prophets, they were all mistreated. They were all abused. They were all hated at one time or another. Most of them were put to death for their faith. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And every forerunner, every prophet, everyone who said, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, you better repent, you better repent. Because Christ is coming is a happy message, but changing my sinful life, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, John the Baptist says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, hooray! And then it's, you brood of vipers, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ooh. All right, because the kingdom will not be entered into by the unrighteous. 
And so the, 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 pro, the Old Testament prophet, prophet was not a popular guy. And they were abused, they were mistreated, they were put to death. Isaiah was probably sawn in two. That's the tradition anyway. After he walks around naked for three years, okay? Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the righteous ones. Now see, now you, they were announcing the righteous one. You came face to face with the righteous one. And you did just what they did. And worse. They killed those, the, the prophets, but you, they were announcing the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. They hated the prophets. You hated the reality. The one who was prophesied, the coming Messiah. You put him to death. You who received the laws ordained by angels yet did not keep it. Oh, that had to hurt. You know, the biggest thing that made a, a Pharisee proud of being a Pharisee was how well he kept the law. The Apostle Paul said, as, you know, as far as the righteousness found in the law, blameless, I kept it all. Champion of legalism. And he says, you received the laws ordained by angels that did not keep it. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. Well, we know how this chapter ends. But that expression, resisting the Holy Spirit, why? Again, the idiom stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. The Holy Spirit is being poured forth. The rebuke is coming from Yahweh, but they are resisting. They are resisting as per the human refusal of Proverbs 1, 24a. I called and you refused. Then secondly, the inattention. I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand. Now this is a step above and beyond simply calling. I called and you refused. But that's not the end of the story. See, God's a God of grace who keeps coming. God's a God of grace who keeps reaching out. Remember Adam and Eve were sinners and what did God do? He reached out. He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He came to the regular place at the regular time and they were hiding. And he said, well, here I am at the regular place, regular time. Where are you guys? Adam, where are you? Have you eaten of that fruit? Who told you you were naked? All right. He's reaching out. He's reaching out his hand. He's going that extra mile. He is, in grace, reaching out. I think he does the same thing with Cain. Where's your brother? I don't know. My, my brother's keeper. He's reaching out to Cain. Here he's reaching out. The idea of an outstretched hand. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. See, the outstretched hand is a manifestation of power. An outstretched hand is a work of God in your life. It's designed to get your attention, particularly if it's a hand of discipline. Or maybe it's even a hand of grace when you didn't deserve it because you were refusing when he called, but he reaches out his hand anyway. And you go... Why is he doing that? I ignored him when he called. Now he's stretching out his hand. His hand is still upon my life. See, the atheist can deny that there is a God, but when God is at work, now what are they going to do? He stretched out his hand. And no one paid attention. I'll just act like it didn't happen. I'll just, I'll just completely disregard the reality of that. Nope, that didn't happen. Nope, that didn't happen. God didn't stretch out his hand. Nope. And I think at this point, the inattention is where it becomes the quenching. The quenching from 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The inattention. No one paid attention. Just quench it. Put it out. Like a torch, right? The torch being quenched. If the torch is lit, it's got your attention. You can see it. Put it out. Ha! Doesn't light up anything anymore. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, here's the passage here. In all of these verses, I think we observe the design of God for volitional obedience or volitional disobedience. That although He calls, we must still respond. Although He stretches out His hand, we must give attention, we must pay heed 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. All right, now there's 19 through 22. This becomes then the context for quenching the Holy Spirit. It comes again in connection with the uh, prophetic utterance. Do not despise prophetic utterance. That is, ignore it. Give it, be inattentive. Something you despise is something you give no no uh, value to. You just despise it. You don't even pay attention to it, right? You, you just act like they're not there. That's what despising is. Do not despise prophetic honors. Do not quench the spirit. I find the parallel here with the inattention from Proverbs 1, 24. And beyond simply the academic understanding of doctrine, besides the verbal message, besides the, the, the revelation of the Word of God that, that you're already resisting in the first step, now, because the hand is stretched out, now you are, um, resist, you are inattentive to the work of what God's doing. You're inattentive to the warnings that He gives. You're inattentive to, to the activity of, of the body of Christ, the activity of the church, for example. Abstain everything carefully. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This this reaches the practical application of what we do in our Christian walk. All right, there was a prophetic utterance that told the believers uh, that there was going to be a great famine in Jerusalem, and thankfully the believers didn't despise the prophetic utterance and they uh, responded. They weren't inattentive. They weren't quenching the spirit. And they, they put some funds together and they sent uh, Barnabas and Paul down from Antioch to Jerusalem and helped to provide relief in that famine. Other events were very similar and, and, and the believers had to learn to, to be obedient when God's hand was stretched out, when a particular evidence of divine guidance was being, was being um, exhibited. See, God's hand was stretched out. It was very clear that we were going to have a seminary. We were going to start training pastors and we were, we were going to move from Woodrow to come over here and all these things. God's hand was stretched out. We did not want to be inattentive to the outstretched hand of what God was doing. Just as we didn't want to be resisting to the message, to the calling, message to, the, uh, to the spoken truth. So whether it's a calling, we don't want to be resisting. If it's a hand stretched out, we don't want to be inattentive. We don't want to be inattentive. I think it's a huge snare. Most believers, and I'm, I'm or most churchgoers, I don't know if they're regenerate or not, but most churchgoers are so busy doing what they're doing and asking God to bless what they're doing, they don't open their eyes to see what God's doing. <laughs> His hand is stretched out. Don't be inattentive. See what he's doing and become his fellow worker. Be about his business. Don't demand that he bless what you're doing. Right? He will bless what he's doing. So get on board with what he's doing. So, refusal, what he calls. I parallel that to resisting the Holy Spirit. Inattention when his hand is stretched out. I parallel that to quenching the Holy Spirit. And then neglect. Back in Proverbs it says, you neglected my counsel. You did not want my reproof. You neglected all my counsel. Neglected all my counsel. Now with counsel, we start to get into the more advanced realms of the believer's faith. We start to get to the more mature dimensions of our walk in terms of counsel. And this I equate, the neglect I equate to the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Because neglect is now a willful rejection. Neglect is a willful substitution. You know it's right, but you neglect it because you're pursuing this other thing. Alright? This is the, uh, the active neglect from Proverbs one twenty five, And I believe it equates to the grieving of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.20. You neglect your uh, uh, physical fitness. You neglect your uh, 
appropriate diet. You neglect your uh, spiritual discipline. How? Well, by taking part in other things instead. All right? Eating the wrong kind of foods. Uh, doing the non-exercising things. Uh, doing the non-spiritual church-going things. Okay? This is the active neglect where you are grieving the Holy Spirit. Instead of being filled by the Holy Spirit, you are filled with your own flesh. Notice um, how verse 30 sits in the midst of this whole application here. Starting in verse 17, you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. We're saved. We're believers. God expects us to live that way. He expects that the conduct of our Christian walk will be uh, appropriate for the, uh, the salvation that He's provided us. You know, if we were going to walk as an unbeliever, then why did He save us? We could just be unbelievers and walk that way. But He saved us. We, our walk should correspond to the grace we've received. And so, um, notice in verse 20, you did not learn Christ this way. Indeed, you have heard Him, have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. This requires the renewing of your mind. This requires that not only do you get saved, but you get grounded in the Word of God. You let, you don't, you're not resistant to the Holy Spirit when He's teaching. You're not inattentive to the hand of God when it's on your life. You're submitting to His teaching. You're submitting to His work in your life. You're a hearer and you're a doer. All right. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust and deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Every single day you decide what you're going to wear today, what you're going to put on. You're going to put that old man back on? That was crucified with Christ. Why are you putting that back on again? Put on the new man. That's what his gift is. Put that on. And depending on what outfit you're wearing, depends on who you're submitting to. Either God the Holy Spirit or the flesh. Galatians 5 makes it either or. You can't have it both ways. Which suit of clothes do you have on? The old self or the new self? The old coat or the new coat? Signature Sound sings that song about a new coat. It's a fun song. He's given us this new coat. Let's put it on. That old coat, that old nasty thing, I don't want that anymore. All right. So therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one, with his neighbor. And all of these are the practical applications, the expressions of our faith. Be angry, you do not sin. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, uh, so that he can share. He must rather labor, performing with his own hands which, that which is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but such is good for edification. All right, now, in all of these things, it's more than just a list of do's and don'ts. See, it's not legalism. The idea is, is that we are responding to the grace that has saved us, and we are walking accordingly. And, and bigger than just not doing the bad stuff is that when we're walking the right way, we have opportunities now to do the good stuff. We have opportunities to share. We have opportunities to, uh, to speak the truth in love. We have the opportunities to, to uh, minister, to edify And then it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is the worst thing you can do with the Holy Spirit. This is worse than resisting. This is worse than quenching. This is the the, the pinnacle of pneumatological apostasy. All right? This is, you go beyond resisting, you go beyond quenching, and now you are grieving because you are deliberately You're putting that old man back on again. You're deliberately rejecting the empowerment. You're not walking according to the Spirit. You are fulfilling the lust of the flesh, and you're doing so willfully. You know that that's not good for you, but you do it anyway. You're neglecting, as uh, Proverbs 1 says, neglecting his counsel. It's a neglect, it is an absolute neglect. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. You see, it should be a response 
to the position we have in Christ. All right, well. Good. I'm glad we got through that in one hour. I wanted to get through refuse, inattention, and neglect and the parallels in the New Testament. So you got something to chew on, think about it, pray about it, review those verses. We'll come back to this next uh, next week, Lord willing and rapture pending, and uh, work our way through the rest of the chapter. D, E, and F will take us through uh, the rest of Proverbs chapter 1. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this morning, for the truth of your word, the blessing we have to assemble together. Thank you for this Wednesday morning service, for the ladies in their prayer time, for uh, Dan and Lewis in their uh, ministry training, for uh, this Proverbs class, for all that you do, Father. Uh, you just multiply your, your grace upon grace provision. We thank you for it. We ask that we might be uh, humble to receive it, that we would not resist it, that we would not uh, ignore it or be inattentive, that we would not grieve, quench, or resist the Holy Spirit. Father, humble us to receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.